0: St. Louis, well out on top. The rookie walking away in count number three. Oh, Mandigo, sideways, backwards into the pit wall. Yellow flag, Steve Mandigo, backwards into the foam at the head of the front straightaway. It's Murphy on the inside. Donahue on the outside. Mark your man in the infield. Mike Rollins off the top of the high. Yellow flag. Pull up in turn four. Mike Rollins off the top of the hurry in column number 90. Full throttle off the top for Rollins into the foam. Two to go now for St. Louis at the start-finish line. The only thing that can stop him now is lap traffic crashing in front of him. White flag for Justin St. Louis. The battle will be for second. Checkered flag coming out. No contest for the Crunch Punch. Justin St. Louis wins it easily. Here comes the race for second at the stripe. At the line for second! Oh, I don't
1: know! Welcome, everybody, to the Uncommon Deeds podcast. The race for second
2: was way better than the race
1: for first. Yeah. Uh, He didn't know for a while, so I I left it out.
2: uh, It was Matt Potter and Rick Streeter, but I don't remember who got second. I think it might've been Matt Potter. I believe so. And they were both in pickup trucks and they were so slow. They ran side by side the whole race and they were so slow that I had a half a lap lead.
1: And you also, you had dominated the heat. Yeah. Was this the week where you got your PP slapped for stinking up the show?
2: It is. Yeah, it absolutely is. And by the way, let's just be clear. The reason why I started on the pole and and blew everybody away is because I didn't qualify for three or four weeks in a row. So (laughs) my handicap was absolutely the lowest it could be. (laughs) And uh, yeah, so we were gifted one. Um, But yeah, that's the night that Tom Curley was like, hey, this is your first win, right? And I was like, yeah. And he grabs my hand and I think he's going to shake my hand. But he pulled me in close. And he's like, if you ever ruin my show like that again, I will tear your car down until we find something illegal. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> Message delivered.
1: So you're saying you're proud of me. Yeah. Thanks. That's uh-huh. what I'm going to take from that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, How yeah. you doing, buddy? I'm good. How are you? Hey, we're back another week.
2: That was 22 years ago. A little Holy more. Shit. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I'm old and fat now.
1: Right on.
0: <laughs> How are you doing? Oh, uh,
1: old and fat. Yeah. Is In golf cons- considerably Is- more gray than you? Uh, well, Okay. I'll
2: give you that. Is golf done? Is it too cold now? Like it uh, drop 20 degrees in the middle of the day today.
1: Yeah. I think uh, we're supposed to close today. We're recording this on Sunday, but then I got another at least week or so of closing everything up and putting stuff away and maybe cutting up some trees. We'll see. I'll keep cashing them checks while he wants to keep giving them to me.
2: Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Make that
1: paper. It'd be far less stressful. Mm. I'm just yeah. going to put it out there because I know he's not listening. Then, yeah, I will get my 40 hours this week, but the amount of work done will not be near 40 hours. I'll tell you that.
2: <laughs> You'll be there for 40 hours. Mm-hmm. But you won't be there
1: for 40 hours. I got to remember to bring my portable charger to charge back up the phone. There you go. Especially if it's 40 degrees and raining. Mm, yeah. This is the
2: November we know. Uh, uh, we should have been at Loudon today for the uh, for the Northeast, or the, excuse me, the New England Racing Museum. Yeah,
1: you'll I'm get gonna that. Say, but... you'll, you're going to nail that at some point. You're going to get that yeah. name change right.
2: Well, Bob, Bob Yaki couldn't get it right, so <laughs> he runs the damn place.
1: Uh, no, it looked like it was a hell of good time.
2: Yeah. Yeah. As we record this, we're getting all the social media stuff and people messaging us like, Oh my God, you should have been there. It was amazing. So, um, our buddy, Jeff Champagne was there and he asked Dave Dion about racing on dirt. And he said, Dave had a great answer, but he, he didn't tell me what it was. So I don't, I can't share that story, but yeah, well,
1: Thank you for bringing that up. Well, but
2: that's the kind of show it was, was, you know, it sounded like a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, that is, uh, that would have been a group full of guests that could have been our first live show or second live show or to be determined live show.
2: Right. And honestly, it sounds pretty similar to what we did at the Milk Bowl. Um, Who was it? It was Bobby and Beaver uh dragon and kelly moore brad layton dave Dion. so that's a that's a pretty damn good panel
1: a lot of them guests right here on yeah, uncommon kelly deeds the
2: only one. yeah
1: go back listen to those episodes mm-hmm. i do and look, we
2: got <laughs> and we got dave moody as the he was the MC, and we've had him too so we all right
1: we're doing okay a lot of people a lot of people pulling and taking from our show mm-hmm. recently that's right, and that's that's for you. That's for you. There you go, teeing it right up. That's uh, a uh, <laughs> that's a softball for something we've been talking about in the last few days. Well,
2: so the Dale Junior Download, one of their sister podcasts. I don't even remember what it's called. Next Level, I think. Yeah, it's new. It's a very new show. Um, with a kid named Andrew Curlin, Curland, I think, and he's a kid. Like he's in college. He's a kid. And starting out, and he's got this new show, and his first guest ever was Jimmy Johnson, and his second guest ever is Ken Squire. And you and I both kind of saw the the teaser that they put out about Ken, and we're like,
1: hmm. Not I, that I, we I, have, like, yeah. rights over Ken Squire by any no, means. No, right.
2: And, like, that, it felt silly to, to feel like, what are you guys doing?
1: Come on. Like a protective parent watching out for their child.
2: That's exactly what it was. Like I wanted to protect Ken from who is this kid, you know, but obviously, and I thought about this, like you and I were both like, what, what? And then I was like, listen, if Dale Earnhardt Jr. is putting his faith in this kid, then the kid obviously has something. He's got some merit and will do a good job. And I actually had a conversation with Ashley Squire today. Ken's daughter And she's like, you know, they, they found your show because, or they, they, I'm sorry, they put the Ken show together with this kid because of the uncommon deed show. And that made me feel a little tingly. I I like that. But, um, she said, you know, dad, Ken is in like, this is kind of, this will be his last interview. And. You know, he's he's 87 and not where he had been. You know, it's just that's what happens when you're 87. And we got the local stuff. We got the Thunder Road, the Morrisville Field Track, the Essex Fairgrounds. Cat-a-mail. We got that stuff. And they wanted the NASCAR side to kind of bookend it. And um, I I am sure that they'll have... Done a masterful driving. They have a staff. <laughs> they can put together a nice show.
1: The uh the production on the three minute yeah. teaser was it was well done. Yeah. It was impressive. <laughs> yeah. I'm not saying we so, couldn't do it, but yeah. <laughs> it would but have taken haven't. a lot of effort <laughs> to do it. And they probably have access to things a little more yeah. so than than you and I do in terms of highlights I, and
2: I think it's fair to say that we're both gonna listen and, and look forward to it. You know? Yeah. But but when we first saw this thing, we we're like, oh jealous exes. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> Who the hell is he dating now?
2: Yeah. My my thing and I actually asked Ashley was like, why in the friggin' hell was it not Dale Earnhardt Jr. interviewing Kent? And it's basically schedules and flying and getting a crew in the spot where they need to be for a few days. And, you know, junior schedule is a little wild right now, and getting Ken to North Carolina isn't exactly the easiest thing to do. So this made more sense and I get it.
1: But, no, yeah, I look forward to listening to it.
2: Yeah, me too. And, and I'm sure that it's going to be a wonderful – you know, uh, retrospective of, of his life and in, in the sport.
1: Yeah. Anyway, uh, that was a weird transition, not to be Ooh, all... We got through it. Anyway. Okay. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, back to dirt this week.
2: Yeah. Yep. Um, and this turned out to be a really, I think, really cool little chat with, with Bobby Hackle. Um, a guy that you don't know, Tom. Correct. Uh, well, you know him now because we've done it. But um, And he's a guy that I haven't seen race in a couple of years. I don't think at all. But I was there for his most formative years and watched him go from when people were calling him hack job behind his back to being a champion. Um, and uh, it's a very, he's had a very interesting life and career in the sport, and he's not even 30 yet.
1: No, it was very well-spoken and some good kind of introspective answers on a few questions, which I always enjoy, and it lets us kind of dive deeper in different areas. It's got the cool, like, black frame, glasses look going on. Looks like he could be, like, a singer for R.E.M. or something. Whoa. You know I had my pictures taken with R.E.M. once? Yeah, I'll show you sometime. It's me in the corner.
2: It's been a while since you did that to me. I mean, a year since you <laughs> since you got me with one of those.
1: Yeah, I haven't been uh wow. popping off on the dad jokes lately.
2: Good deal.
1: Nice. Okay. Uh merch a lot of stuff I mean, coming a lot of merch. Oh yeah. And I don't know if it's just annoying for you guys, for us to keep bringing it up every goddamn week, but not telling you what's coming. But we want to just keep it in the back of your brain as the holidays are coming, that we're going to have some new stuff and we're going to have some cool stuff.
2: Wicked cool stuff. We have two projects that have been, that have received approval from those who need to approve them. Um, and another one just today that um, the egg is, is cracking and the baby bird's about to crawl out. So we're, we're um, really, really excited about this stuff. And like we said, we're going to have our new um, the UDP flag logo on some new stuff like winter hats and hoodies and things of that nature. So um, the store will be open soon. Don't you worry. But, yeah, we got,
1: I think, One, at least one new Uncommon Deeds shirt coming, which we're super excited about, which has got a real throwback vibe to it. Yeah. And then we have the start of a new project we're doing. You know what? I'm going to give you this. It's called the Legend Series.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Where it'll be something different every month or two, and then that original one will probably go away. And like Justin said, we've gotten the OKs from people we need OKs for for the first couple of those. And then we have another little nugget that we got Just approval silly. for that might be Justin's favorite. <laughs> and it has to do with an episode we did a little less than a year ago yeah, with a couple charming young men yeah. who created their own racetrack. Well, I think we've I think we've narrowed it right down. Then it's a Thunder Road shirt. No, it's not. <laughs> so be ready and shop Uncommon Media for all your holiday shopping.
2: Yeah. Oh man, we're excited. We like we we've been giddy about this stuff the last couple of days and weeks. Um, yeah, it's really kind of cool.
1: And Justin even got himself his own one-off, uncommon deeds flannel.
2: Yeah, we had a shirt in the shop that was uh, had the wrong logo embroidered on it for a customer, and I had just gotten the flag logo, our flag logo, digitized for for embroidery, and they were going to throw the shirt out. And I was like, "Well, it fits me. Kind of looks good." It's like, "Can we embroider over the mistake?" And they're like yes it's perfect so we did a little tester and it's not show quality i'm not gonna that shirt's not for sale um it's not it's not ready for the shelves trust me but the experiment went very well and it looked good and it was something else for linda to roll her eyes at as i wore it in public and
1: though like an uncommon deeds black and white flannel yeah
2: it's This is a good-looking shirt. I'm just saying that the embroidery that was done over the other embroidery. All right, we
1: have to stop coming up with more ideas. Not perfect.
2: Yeah, but right anyway, now. we can.
1: But everything will be up on all the socials, so yeah. just keep an eye out for that. As always, we've got to thank all the people that make this show happen for free every single week. Barry Tile, you know, one of our OGs, been with us for a long time. Mm-hmm. And couldn't be more happy to still have them on board with us. And you guys should check out their Facebook page if you need some inspiration. And if you need work done, you don't even need to check out the Facebook page. Just go see them. Call them. Take our word for it. They're going to be the ones to make your project look great.
2: That's right. Yep. Um, 50, coming up on 51 years in the business. uh, They know what they're doing. They're good at it, and yeah. Like like we said in the commercial, you don't need our word because them being in business for 50 years pretty much tells it all.
1: But take our word any anyway. Yeah,
2: take our word anyway.
1: Or at least tell them that, you know. That's right. You heard it from us. Yep. Also, Absolutely. with us for coming up on a year, Bushy's Generator Sales and Service and... It's getting real cold. There's rain. It has all the makings for losing the power for a little bit.
2: Mm. When I got up this morning to take the dog out, it was 61 degrees. And when I took the dog out after supper tonight, it was 34. So that is all of November in a 12-hour span. And you know what's coming next. So uh, get ahead of it. Prepare yourself. Get yourself a standby generator um, it's propane powered so it's efficient and you know state-of-the-art kind of stuff uh, the number one briggs and stratton dealer in the state and a uh, big dealer of kohler generators as well ben services vermont new hampshire new york connecticut mass he can pretty much do it all for you um, sales service installation shopping new and used if you're looking for you know, a small portable generator or something like that, he's got those two.
1: Absolutely. And said it, you know what's coming next, and it's snow. Mm. And if we're going to be in a cold environment and we're going to live here, you might as well have some fun. And if you're going to have some fun in the snow, there's one place to go, and that's La Caire's Power Sports. Live that
2: BRAP life. Am I right?
1: I don't know. I'm too old yeah. for that.
2: <laughs> That's what the kids are saying. Uh, sleds and ATVs and boats for the summer, and God, they know how to have fun. Uh, the Lacares are awesome, and they're 61 years in the business. You know, again, you don't need us to tell you that they're good because they've been doing it for literally six decades.
1: Um, tons of safety gear in right now. Yeah. yeah. Tons of helmets. They had like 125 helmets in last week on the showroom floor. More gear coming. And, you know, I learned about that on their Facebook page. And I'm guessing Jarrett probably has a lot to do with it. That they are they're up and on it on the Facebook right now. Jeff See, doesn't
2: seem like a social media darling to me.
1: The last but time Jared I did. knew, he still had a flip phone. That yep. could have changed, but... Right. Uh, but no, they, if they get something in, they put it up there, that could be a great chance to see, especially something used perhaps to see it quickly and strike while the iron's hot to get a great deal.
2: That's right. Yep. And we did share a post on our page recently. It was about a sale or something of of that nature about the, the gear that you're talking about. Um, they've got, it'll blow your mind, the stuff that they've got available for you um and it's like sharp said, it's sharp yeah and like we said don't uh don't wait on next summer that's only six months away um if you're looking at a at a side by side or an atv or a boat or a dock um that's the place to go so think about it now while
1: it's not crazy busy
0: that's heck yeah
2: what you need to do like
1: here's power sports thank you once again to all the sponsors that help us bring this show to you for free every single week. Story time will be back next week. We're kind of going week on week off recently.
2: We'll see if our schedules. I take, I take like a week to think about it and then another week to write it. That's
1: kind of where I'm at. Coming up next week, the story of Chet, you betcha. Have you heard of him? You betcha. You betcha. I and- raced
2: under the name I raced under the name Mitch Fantastic one time. All right. I'm gonna do it again, too.
1: Did you finish fantastically?
2: No, I ran out of gas.
1: <laughs> That's fantastic.
0: Yeah.
1: That seems like as good a place as any to let Justin make today's introduction.
2: You've heard us say it on the show a bunch of times. Racing is generational, and this guy is a fourth generation racer. Um, his grandfather is maybe the best known of, of any of the hackle family, um, almost 300 wins, but the kid's doing okay. Folks, uh, multi-time champion on dirt and a uh, pretty good shoe on asphalt as well. And, uh, it's our pleasure to welcome from the Capital district of New York. For some reason on this show, Bobby hackle, welcome to the show, man.
3: What's up guys. Glad to be here.
2: Yeah. You're one of the very few empire staters that we've had and it's about time we changed that. So
3: thanks for coming on. Absolutely. I mean, I've spent a lot of time in the Green Mountain State, so it'll sure. work. Yeah.
1: Well, we kick it off the same way every single week, and that's kind of when you remember motorsports coming into your life.
3: Man, it's almost easier for me to to not remember it. Like, like or there's a. It's harder for me to not remember it. Let me put it that way. Uh, being fourth generation, uh, my youngest memories are just either at my dad's. Uh, garage or following him to races and then just hearing numerous stories from uh my entire family grandfather and then uh my entire crew which is all mainly family based have been uh around all of us so i kind of uh don't remember anything but racing
2: (laughs) now they always refer to you in new york as bobby the hack bobby hackle the fourth but that's not true right
3: that's that's true like honestly my grandfather's the only junior technically we oh, all have d- uh so I'm um, everybody calls me Bobby Hackle IV or four or whatever but uh, it's just easier to remember us that way but uh yeah technically I'm not a junior neither is my dad so
2: interesting so you just call each other by middle names around Christmas dinner or what
3: yeah even around my garage there's like Four different bobs that help us too so you just yell bob in my garage and everybody turns and we'll figure out which one you're talking to <laughs> perfect yeah
2: <laughs> so your grandfather he you probably never saw him race did you
3: i never got to no so
2: i didn't either but everything that i've always read and seen and heard is that he was an absolute wheel man
3: absolutely and like he lived and breathed volkswagens because that was his day job too and so he just knew how to get absolutely the most out of an air-cooled Volkswagen. So that definitely helped his program out a lot.
1: <laughs> what was the greatest story your grandfather ever told you about his racing um, career?
3: Probably when they won at Pocono, which was like a, a huge, from what I'm told by him and my uncle and all the, the, his friends that went to it um, for those years. They said that was like their Daytona 500 per se for um for the mini stock division where they'd get hundreds of cars and all that. So hearing him, I, I believe he won it twice. So hearing his stories of going down there and, and winning that a couple times, um, that's that's definitely I think my favorite story from him because just like everything he's ever told me, he's definitely like the most proud of that. So it's yeah. uh, awesome.
2: We had uh, Tom Glazer on the show, uh, I don't know, a couple months back, and he raced with your grandfather quite a bit in the late 70s, early 80s. And he, uh, third or fifth or something at Pocono in one of those races that he ran, and he said, there's 150 cars from all over the country. And, you know, your grandfather was the king of the mini stocks and kind of just killed everybody.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So like, there's there's literally like every track I go to like five mile point, we went for their finale a couple weeks ago. And uh, every track I go to any people always grab me and Hey, I remember your grandfather racing here with those Volkswagens. And uh, so it's, it's pretty awesome that everywhere as I go, they might not know me, but they know our last name. So that's, it's just awesome. You know,
2: I mean, our, our listenership will know that Thunder
3: road, obviously he won up there in the seventies with a dirt car, like (laughs) pretty wild. Yeah. Back then he, and he didn't care if it was dirt or asphalt. He had a couple little changes he would make and uh, he'd run whatever in that class. Which that, yeah, I, thought, I think it's cool back then that um, it was wide open enough to where people could run both disciplines with pretty much the same car.
2: Okay. So, I mean, your grandfather, obviously, like you said, you never saw him race. Um, but your dad was a racer too. And I've seen your dad race, so I know you've seen him race. But when do you remember or what do you remember about his career? Um, honestly, I don't know a whole lot about your dad's career.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So like when I was younger, I didn't get to go a ton when he was racing. But like my earliest, I really remember him was at Fonda, probably like 2001 to 04. Um, He transitioned there from Lebanon Valley. And that's those are like the years I remember the most of my dad racing. And his final year in 2004 um, was the closest he ever got to winning a championship. And so I remember that year quite a bit. He finished just a couple points shy of winning it uh, against John McAuliffe that year. And, uh, so I remember that year a lot. Uh, it was really, he's, he was never boring in a race car and you know, or yeah, out of it, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And proud of it. He was, he was Mr. Excitement. That was his nickname up at Fonda and he earned it. But, uh, you know, sometimes people might bust his balls quite a bit that he didn't have the success that my grandfather did or that I have. And, uh, Sometimes I think it's unfair because he just didn't have the equipment that we did and the opportunities that I've gotten. Um, and, you know, transitioning from the mini mods to the, the open wheel sportsman division that my dad did when the mini mods kind of died out, um, it was something that, you know, our family didn't have a lot of experience in. So he, he, was, he was floating on his own for quite a bit and had to learn the hard way. So he, uh, he did good with what he had. But he also, he had a long career still ahead of him but he stepped aside to really let my career get going quicker. And so I got to thank him a lot for that.
1: Well, I guess that leads us to you. And what is the first thing you get behind the wheel of?
3: I started racing go-karts, uh, at age four, almost five at Dodge City Speedway in Cobleskill, New York.
2: Is that dirt or is that paved?
3: That's dirt, little tiny dirt track, uh, by the house caverns, um, down down uh
2: 88 there's a a ton of go-kart tracks around that area yeah they're kind of half dirt half paved and everybody races all of them
3: yep yep i mainly did dirt but i did do uh in, in the later stages of my career before we moved up um i did do some asphalt racing down south um it was cool but just uh we just weren't familiar that much with it so
2: i mean how'd you do were you were you a good kart racer or
3: yeah, we did. We did. We were quite successful. We got hooked up some really good people. My dad had a lot of friends in it, uh, like Billy Wood and some guys at the time that really got my program going. And and that's the thing. Like, I was just really getting starting to get successful on the local scene um, in oh four oh five, and that's when my dad decided to park his big car, and then we went racing uh, nationally and regionally, and um, started following some WKA stuff, and uh, it really took me to that next level racing three or four nights a week and a couple of different divisions and stuff. And uh it just we we won our fair share of races and we raced a lot, which I think just getting used to traveling and uh and living my life racing um not just once in a while really uh you know taught me a lot and got me prepared to what we're doing now.
1: How is that lifestyle for a young high schooler at that point in terms of or even friends socially?
3: Well, so I, I, had hooked up with one, uh, close buddy, uh, named Cody Oaks. who races a sportsman car. We and oh, him yeah. went to this school, And so he was like my one true friend in school because he got it. Nobody else kind of did. And so like when it came to like field trips and, uh, I don't know, events in school and stuff like that, I really had no interest in it. I was worried about, At three o'clock, we were hitting the road and going to New Hampshire or or vice versa or down south to go race. And uh, I just got out of there as quick as I could because that's all I kind of cared about. You know, it's just I don't think it's for everybody. And uh, I've always been around kind of like, you know, older guys with the race cars and stuff like that. So I kind of made more friends with them than anything or people that you would meet at the races or other kids at the races. Um, So that was just that's part of it.
2: What's the furthest away you guys traveled to race?
3: Uh, South Carolina. Okay. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So, how, I mean, racing at Dodge City or racing at Turkey Trot or something like that around here, you know, that's a whole different world than running against 500 carts, literally at a national event. How, what was that experience like for
3: you? It was awesome because, like, I think it also taught me that. We we've always had good competition around the Northeast for karting, um, but down there, just racing against some of them, I don't want to call it like NASCAR money or anything like that. But some of them teams that rolled in there were unbelievable. Um, but I think it was good because you know I'd go to I'd, I'd come from winning some championships and winning you know thirty races a year in a go kart up here, and I travel down there and uh, racing in North Carolina, at Charlotte on the oval and stuff. And you're doing all you can do to run. 15th or 20th it just puts it everything in a whole new perspective but i think it's good because it's like is is this the level you want to race at that you got to accept that you're going to get your ass kicked once in a while and you got to work a little harder or learn it um and i think that's why like a lot of times even now in my career i want to race modifieds versus some other classes and stuff like that because i want to race with the best i want to race with the mass shepherds and the sort Freezins and uh any of the above because that's what i've done my whole career my dad's always kind of pushed me that way like you want to race the best so that way when if you do become successful against them guys like it really means something so I don't know just uh, I think it helped me as a whole grow up and uh, lean towards that way
1: so when you're branching out to these other areas and these huge fields are you meeting new people are you kind of expanding or do you guys kind of keep to yourselves
3: um in the carding deal, it was kind of tough. You kind of go down there with your clique of guys from up here, and you're kind of stuck with that. Um, about the only way you can kind of really expand down there and, and learn of different different stuff is get your pocketbook out. And so we were, we were kind of getting to the point where I was starting to get older at that point when we ventured down there. And so we actually, instead of going that next step or – traveling even further or, or moving down there or something like that we decided to start going uh to buy a slingshots is the next step and so then i'd be more acclimated to moving up to a dirt car around here um so that was kind of crossroads at the time we did some southern racing and we were doing okay but we needed to do that next step and so my dad and my grandfather thought it'd be a good decision to start working our way into a different division up here to get acclimated to the dirt cars
2: did you race with any kids in the carts that are, you know, famous, you know, racing at Indy or something now? I mean, there's a ton of kids that come out of carts that do things that are not stock cars.
3: Sure. Um, a couple of them, I've, I've tried to, like, look them up and stuff. Quite a few of them um, have done some starts and like, camping world trucks and stuff like that one-off, but none of them in my class at the time, really, you know, a racing cup or any of that kind of stuff right now. So that I've, that I've seen, I could sure. be wrong. Yeah.
2: And now it occurs to me that if your dad is racing sportsman cars in the early two thousands, is he racing against Matt Shepard and Stuart Friesen? Cause they're in sportsman around that time too.
3: He, he stayed more local. He ran Fonda Lebanon, didn't really venture out much. Um, he did race with a couple of them guys, like I said, he just one off a couple of times, stuff like that. Um, but for the most part, he was a, a weekly racer at those tracks.
2: It's just interesting to see the overlap there.
3: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Like it's funny because like uh, I'm hooked up with Jason Barney right now. He's doing a, he does a lot of the sprint car work with us. When I drive Brandon's car, and he's helped me a bunch with my shocks and suspension program, my modified too. And he he raced to my dad he was kind of starting his time and then my dad was just about getting out, but there's kind of an overlap there. So that's kind of cool.
2: Well, yeah. he's, he's at the top of his game too.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I've learned a ton from him. He's been awesome to work with. Yeah.
2: So, okay. You, you did run slingshots up here.
3: I did. I ran slingshots, I think two, three years. Yep. And they were a great stepping stone. Like literally yeah. like, people ask me that too for their kids or, or stuff to move up. And, uh, it's about as close as you're going to get, I think, to a stock car, um, before getting in one, literally like the only, the biggest transition from a slingshot to a stock car besides the speed is the power steering, believe it or not. Cause the slingshot or go-kart, your direct linkage to the front tires. So you feel every little rumble strip or anything on the racetrack or hole or divot. Um, and, and when I got into a modified, that was one of the biggest transitions. was like, man, I, I've never driven anything with power steering my whole life. And so it was nice and easy to turn the wheel, but I couldn't feel everything. So that was, that was something I had to learn.
2: I definitely remember that in my first four cylinder car, not that it's a modified, but you know, driving when you get your license when you're 16 or whatever, you're on the street and you're, you know, it's easy. And then you get in a race car and it doesn't have power steering. You're like, what the hell is this about? So it's kind of the opposite of what you went through, but um, all right. Well then bring us into modified racing. You, I mean, I met you when you were probably 15 or 16 years old and you were already winning races at that point.
3: So my 13th birthday, my grandfather, my grandfather had um, Jeff Trombley driving for him um, a few one-off races he sailed a small block uh, 358 car and um, so he would run the Lebanon Valley series at the time. I believe it was like 8-10 races a year they would run. Them. So he had that motor sitting there. So for my 13th birthday, Um, they decided they're gonna take me to Fonda and just let me like run the car a few times, see if I could do it or if I liked it, all those kind of things, if I was ready. And so we went to the Fonda two hundred weekend. Uh I think it's McDonald's weekend, it's time. And, And they just said, We're just gonna, you know, start in the back of everything, go out and, you know, get your feet wet. Well, I had no idea what I was doing. And I just (laughs) My dad was like, don't lift in three and four. If you lift, it'll get tight. Those kind of things. Like, oh, it sounds easy. Um, Yeah.
2: Yeah, Except you're going 130 at Fonda. Yeah, yeah,
3: exactly. Uh, Long story short, somehow I didn't wreck anything. I kept, stayed on the lead lap. Uh, I won the B main and I ran the whole, the whole race. And I stayed on the lead lap and kind of just picked the car, followed him around for a while. And I loved it. And I think I exceeded everybody's expectations. And so all the slingshots were gone that, that winter. And, uh, then we bought a crate car because it was like, all right, the 358 is what we had, get your feet wet, but we don't want to throw you in the deep end. We want to get you in a sportsman, the budget sportsman class and the crate class was just starting then. It's just starting to take off. And so, uh, that was a perfect economical way for me to start my racing. So then we started racing Albany, Saratoga once in a while at the time, but we were in Lebanon Valley full time. Um, and then the more we started racing, the years to come, then I started, started running both tracks.
1: After a night like that, where just, you just get your feet wet, stay out of the way, and you have you know, success in that sense, can you grasp that at the time, at the end of that night? Or are you still kind of a young punk kid saying, yeah, I kick ass? I mean, are you like racing against
2: Hearn and those guys in this race? Is that what I'm picking up?
3: Yeah, I had I had Ronnie, Bobby Baron, Danny Baron. I got pictures. Me, I basically followed Danny Baron around like the whole race. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, I couldn't. I had the hardest part of that whole day that I can remember is I could not get the car out of gear because my arms are so short and I could not grab the set, could not pull it out of second gear myself. So every time I'd come into pits after a heat race or anything, I'd stall it and I'd have to try to get it out of gear and go back to my pit. And um, So I thought it was like, wow, this is easy. I can do this. So fast forward to April, the following season, I go out the opening night at Lebanon Valley. Um, I drew the pole of my heat race. I won my heat race again, heads about this big i'm like wow this is great i can do this i drove in the first turn of the feature and stuffed it in the fence back to reality had a lot to learn (laughs) getting a group of cars and uh at those speeds at a different racetrack uh where you have to let off and hit the brakes and all those kind of things i had a lot to learn still so Mm. yeah yeah at 13 14 uh back to reality real quick
2: so like Was that expected though? I mean, did your grandfather and your parents say, you know, the kid's going to tear some stuff up? I mean, especially at the Valley, which that place is insane to
3: run. So that's a, it's a funny transition. Like, so that was expected. And so that was how I got hooked up being on a PMC car, which now I work at PMC full time, but my grandfather and my dad, they, my dad ran Troyers back in the day. My grandfather was great friends with Ronnie Johnson and Jeff Tromley. So he had some TO cars. Um, in between that time. And then he said, listen, you're going to wreck stuff. Pete is a great guy at PMC. He's real close. It's going to work out great. Cause you're going to wreck a bunch of stuff and he's right here. So that we ended up getting PMC cars for that reason. And, uh, I've never had anything else. I've never driven anything else. So it was just a, a connection that worked out mm-hmm. from the for that reason. And I did, I've, I've, I tell people and customers all the time, like since. I started racing throughout. I've uh, been like the in-house crash test dummy at times at PMC. I've crashed about almost every year car was at some point. So, yeah.
1: Were you, at what point did you start working on your own stuff? Or was that kind of the prerequisite with your family? If you're going to do it, you're going to figure out how to fix it.
3: Yeah, I mean, like in go karts and slingshots, I was always out in the garage with my dad, and I'd tinker and do stuff like that. But once I got into the um, the sportsman car and all that, um, like that first winter after after that October when I got my feet wet, um, I was all in. Like that's all I wanted to do. Worked out in the garage. I didn't know a lot, but they taught me um, working with them. And it's uh, all I wanted to do was work on them, be around them all the time. Um, so it really was no question. <laughs>
2: PMC is the only chassis you've even driven.
3: Yeah. Like I've, I've in backup situations or if I've had a problem, um, I've took out like Kobe Schroeder's TO for a couple laps before. Yeah. Um, and I did that one other time in a Bicknell for like four or five laps just to get some points. Um, but I've never competitively raced anything but a PMC. No kidding.
2: And yeah. that's, I mean, you guys are a small operation. That's such a I, rare, that's such I, a rare car to find. Sure is. And, and like the huge news this year, of course, was when Kenny Tremont won the Vermont 200 and won oh. the only car on the field, and it was the only bar car at the track. Like, so you must, I would assume, take a pretty big amount of pride when a PMC does well with somebody else at the controls, right? Because your fingerprints are all over the car.
3: Absolutely. So, like, I'm I'm the fabricator on that side. I build every car in the jig. Um, Pete does the finish welds on it. But that, like, literally every car that's gone out of there, uh, I started there, I think it was 2013. So since 14 on, I've built every frame out of that place. Um, And so I take a huge amount of pride, no matter who it is, even if I'm racing against it, if it's one of our cars in victory lane. Because I know um, I'm a company man, so, like, I'm not just trying to take credit for it. But, like, just seeing our company win a race feels just as good as, as me winning a race personally, too. So... Um, like especially this year when I've past couple of years when I've gotten out on the road and doing a lot more races, um, I think it's helped the company as a whole because I'm just a flat out open notebook with any one of our guys, which every every chassis company has, you know, good customer service and stuff like that. Um, especially Bicknell. They've got a million cars out there. Um but like, like Pete tells people, especially like at PMC, we're not a race car factory. We're race car builders. So we don't build hundreds of cars. We built 22 last year. And that was a lot for us um, being a two-man band. But um, those 22 guys, it's almost like being in a smaller class in school. We're just one-on-one. Like you can call Monday and you're not waiting on the phone all day. And uh, I'm open to Facebook messages or texts or calls from any of our guys whenever and uh, so I think we don't have the numbers they do, but I think we're way more one-on- one, and we have w- like way more um, there's not much exclusivity, you know I, I don't, it's hard to say, but, uh, yeah, I just think our, our quality is is, if not better than anybody, and um, just just way more in depth with our guys.
1: A little more mom and pop, and I mean that in a
3: yeah. good way. absolutely.
1: I,
2: I'll never forget the look on Pete's face uh, at the two hundred this year when when Kenny won that race. I mean, they were all celebrating. You know, John St Germain was out of his mind. Yeah, uh, but so how was that for you? You weren't you weren't there, right? You weren't racing, but like you must have been on race monitor. Like, I, holy crap! He's gonna twenty five to go. He's gonna do this.
3: Yeah, I was at year to Chrome watching it all, and then so we had uh, when John had put the deal together with Kenny. Um, he had actually hurt his back pretty bad that week. And so he brought the car over to PMC and we did the maintenance on it for him. We scaled it, we set it all up. And so it was really awesome knowing we had that much inclusion in it, um, to get Kenny and victory lane. And then, uh, I had sent Pete with some of my shocks that like, Hey, if it's going to do this, like, let's, you might want to try this. And so it was pretty cool that, uh, had, had a quite a few, a few pieces of my car on there. And, uh, And my hands in it all week. So it was, it was awesome between me, Pete, John, Kenny. It was just a great combo. And, uh, I was, I was smiling ear to ear. I was actually on my way home from Utica watching the live, uh, from the last, I think it was like 75 laps. So it was pretty awesome.
1: How much do you enjoy that aspect of what you're doing? We've talked to a lot of guys who almost enjoy the building of the car, the setting up of the car, more so than the driving itself?
3: I enjoy it a ton, and I can't think of myself doing anything different. But I like being a race car driver just a little bit more. <laughs> so I think it's, that's just like the, I don't know, I've grown up racing my entire life. And so I like seeing our stuff parked in Victory Lane, no matter who's driving it, but still if i have the chance and i'm sitting second to one of our cars i will take 10 out of 10 times to try to pass it so there's still just that little bit of i don't know killer instinct or whatever you want to call it that uh i still want to be standing with a checkered flag
2: <laughs> have you ever moved one of your own cars out of the way to win a race
3: uh you can ask saint germain i may have a time or two.
2: <laughs> <laughs> i love it yep. oh my god okay so uh let's go back to where we started that whole thing and you're a sportsman driver now at 14 years old. Uh, and I mean, yes, you had that great run at Fonda. And then you stuffed it in the wall at the Valley. So that's kind of the reset button for you. And like you said, it brings you back to earth. So how did that adjust your your outlook on things? Like, Because you're flying high and then you're not.
3: Um, it definitely brought me back to reality for a little bit but I was so young too when I started and then I had such great people behind me that put me in great equipment. And so in the crate class, especially we started really running good and winning some races. So you get your confidence built back up. And, uh, over the next three, four years, we won a lot and we won a championship at Malta against tons of cars that were there. Um, won a championship at Lebanon and we started running a little bit of tour races and won some of them. So, my confidence got really high especially for a young kid and then i decided to go modified racing and i got kicked back to reality again really quick and uh went from winning i don't know eight nine races a year to i didn't win a race for three four years and that was tough and Inside, I wanted to keep racing Modifieds because that's what I've always done, going back to the go-kart deal and all that kind of stuff. I've wanted to race at the top level of whatever I'm doing. and But at the same time, it kicks your ass when you're getting your ass beat up and down the road for two or three years, and you haven't won at all. And so uh, it, it was quite a few years, and we finally – and I finally, like, the past two seasons, I feel like I'm actually coming into my own in a modified. And it's been a while. Um, throughout then, I've done you know sportsman races on and off, especially Devil's Bowl, won a championship there and stuff like that, which helps and it keeps the confidence built back up to like, yeah, I can still do this and even run it against great field of cars at Devil's Bowl. Um, but at the same time, when you get back in the modified with double or triple the horsepower and you're still not having the same success. You, you doubt yourself. I don't care who you are. Um, you're like, what am I doing wrong? Can I just not figure out the horsepower? Or am I setting things up wrong? This, that, whatever. Um, but you also try to keep in perspective, like you're racing with the best. You're racing with guys that have more years of experience than I am alive in that class already. So I feel like I've paid my dues and I'm finally getting to where I've wanted to be. It's just taking a little longer than expected for sure.
2: So paying your dues is a thing that I wanted to ask you about. And one of my earliest introductions to you was in the pavement years at devil's bowl in Malta. And you and Ron Proctor kind of had some, I don't, I don't want to say issues, but you rooted him a couple of times. And, and he kind of was like, all right, I'm, you know, Ron Proctor doesn't raise his voice and he, but he was pissed at you. You know, he was like, that's enough, you know? And I'm sure that he knows your family, you know, you guys probably must've raced against each other forever. Um, so how did that go? And maybe not even specifically that, but when those veterans come over to you and say, all right, kid, you know, this is what you're doing wrong. And if you do it again, I'm going to put you into the firewall, you know?
3: Yeah, that was, sounds like a big thing too. Like I was so young and I would get cocky just like any young kid did. Um, and then, so I, got, I transitioned to the asphalt. And again, I went from being successful on the dirt, went to the asphalt, didn't have as much success quick. And those guys have all been successful. And so there was a lot of times I might not have had as good of a car as I needed. So I drove over my head and then you're pinging off people and uh, you piss some people off like that. And yeah, I mean, you don't ever want to piss a veteran off, especially somebody like Ron who's won so many races and that families know each other and those kind of things. So I mean, granted, my family and my crew's always got my back whether I'm wrong or not. But when you get older, you can look back and be like, yeah, you know, you're watching old video. You can go, yeah, I probably wasn't in the, <laughs> in, the in the right on that side of things. Um, I did push some people out of the way or you watch a video back and go, that was a little embarrassing. Probably shouldn't have stoved it in there. But uh, I also think it wouldn't have made me the driver I am today if I didn't learn those things and get put back into my place sometimes by some guys, you know?
1: Were there any veterans in particular that kind of took you under their wing a little bit or that you could go to for advice?
3: Yeah, probably probably Kenny Tremont, absolutely, was one. Um, I actually went to college at Hudson Valley and all kind of through that same time frame. It was actually around the same time frame as I was trying to make my transition into modifieds. And uh, I went and talked to him a couple times in his classroom where I was kind of like, at the point where should i move back down the sportsman um where i'm successful am i in over my head those kind of things um and i even said to him at one point i was like you know i'm hearing six seven different things from different people and i don't know what to do and he sat down told me his side of things and he ended it with kind of what i just said he's like you got to think like you're racing against race teams that have taken lifetimes to build up to the point they're at right now that you're racing against and he's like that's what you got to decide are you going to try to build something up to where these guys are or do you want to move back down to where you were what you already had built up and he's like you got to think about who's telling you what and where it's coming from and what do those people stand for and you got to weigh those things out but hearing it from somebody like that you know it it made sense made a lot of sense (laughs) so um I've tried to think about that ever since and that's what I've been trying to do with the me and the people around me. I'm just trying to build our program up and it takes a long time. And if this is what I want to do and I feel like I'm finally got my trajectory of what series and class and stuff I want to run. I feel like we're just, you know, building bricks up and we're getting closer and closer.
1: Kind of going off that and what Justin asked you, do you put thought into or care about your reputation or what people might think about you?
3: Um, I feel like when I was younger, I just cared about accolades or trophies or championships, um, which all of that is super important. I mean, that's what we race for, but now that I'm older and I feel like I'm in the industry and I'm representing PMC or killer crate or any of those things, I feel like my image and the things I say, um, or my social media presence, or uh, you know, podcasts, any of that kind of stuff. It means a lot more than I ever thought about, and so I try to represent our company, or how I talk to customers, or any of those kind of things, or even how I race guys. Like I still feel like I'm a pretty aggressive racer compared to most, but at the same time, I got to think like I don't want to be a wrecking ball. I don't want to root one of our customers out of the way or, or something like that. You know, I might. I might rough John St. Germain or somebody up, but I'm not going to go and take one of them out. Cause you know, that's not going to represent our, any of our products good. So it definitely weighs in. Um, so yeah, yeah, I definitely do think about that a lot more than I used to.
2: So you said you're aggressive, so I'm going to build off that <laughs> because, <laughs> um, you know, your, your years at devil's bowl five, six, eight years ago. Um, and granted a lot of it was on that little track and it was so hard to stay clean on that track. And I understand that, but you know, the, the guys like Quinville or whoever Leduc were always, you know, here's a frigging hackle kid and, you know, using that bar on the the nerf bar and and we got rid of the the double right side bar because everybody
3: complained about Bobby hackle. Right. (laughs) I think, I think half my problem was I knew the guy that made him, which was me. So, I yeah. knew it was- <laughs> but-,
2: <laughs> but, I mean, it was calculated, though. I You know, you obviously know that you're going to have to race these guys every week. Um, and I'd say it paid off with seven wins and a championship that year. It was at 16, I think. So, um, and by the way, you beat Kenny Tremont for that title. <laughs> so, that must have made him happy, too. But you know, you, you have a brake pedal and you have the choice to use it or not. And, uh, you were certainly much more mature than a 13 or 14 year old kid at that time and still took those risks. Not every time. Um, but still took those risks to move people out of the way if, if that was the choice between winning or losing. Right.
3: Yeah. So I think a lot of that is, is a couple things. A, it was all in that same time frame where I'm really struggling with my modified. And so I need to win races to keep my backers, my people around me happy and supporting me. I think I can still do it. I got to show myself. I could still do it. Um, and in crate racing, it's tough because especially at a tighter racetrack, if you lift for two seconds and you bog it down, you almost lose an opportunity for a lap or two and you got to wind it back up and those kind of things. Where in a modified, you know, you got all the power, you can almost get away with making a mistake or, or you almost get a second chance at some guys sometimes. Um, and I feel like I still had things to prove. So I feel like every year I learn a lot and it was awesome to win those races. And, uh, but there's times I do look back, even in that season, I watched some races back and I'm like, Oh, probably could have waited in another corner there. <laughs> but, uh, um, at the same time, I'm really proud to be a champion, even at that little track. Uh, I, I still miss that little track. I wish once in a while we could have a special there, too, because I've am i grown up racing a lot of big racetracks, but I do feel at home at short tracks more than anything. I just feel like if I can get a car close um, on a short track, you can get up on the wheel and kind of make up some of it, where sometimes at a bigger track, you lose some of that.
1: I'm curious now, at your old age, compared to... <laughs> compared to then, if you're talking to a young kid, how do you relate kind of aggressiveness? If you're talking to that young kid, who's just trying to win every week.
3: It's tough. Like I'm 28 now. So I've been in these things since I was 13. So not old, but like, I do I, I feel, feel like I have quite a bit of experience in them now. And uh, you try to, you try to you watch things and you go man i i've done that um so you try to tell them like i've been there done this next time you should try this um but at the same time it's you don't want to slow a kid down too much either because it's easier to i feel like it's easier to slow somebody down to try to put the fire in them but um you try to just do the normal cliches of like listen if you've got three quarters of a car on somebody it's your spot but if you're not quite to a certain point like, like kids coming from go-karts to modifieds, it's tough to try to judge the front end and those kind of things so you try to help them with that and then you got to try to tell them like listen like the way these cars are built and where you're sitting you're so in the middle um with the headrest and the body so big you try to tell them like just certain nuances like if you like and you if you're in that situation and you can't see the guy if you're in that spot on the inside of him, he's not going to see you either. Um, that's about all you can really do. <laughs> it's tough. It really is because I've been there, um, and and I don't care who you are. You could be Brett Heron or Matt Shepard, and they still once in a while make mistakes. Once in a while, not quite as much, but uh, I do too. <laughs> so
2: your brother tried to do some racing, right?
3: He did. He did. Uh,
2: so are you? Are you kind of the coach in that situation?
3: Yeah, I was. Um, it was. It was fun when he did it. Uh, He just, with a new job and things he had going on, he really just couldn't commit the time to it. Um, But, yeah, I was trying to be, like, everything we just talked about, trying to be that coach. And then, you know, he'd get frustrated, like, spinning out, right in the driest, slickest part of the racetrack, not lifting, gets it turned around. You're trying to tell him, like, listen, I know you're trying super hard to pass that guy. But sometimes – faster or slower and slower is faster in those situations and so but i've been there you know the cars the car in front of you is getting bigger so then you start trying harder and then the car starts getting smaller as it drives away from you and you really don't understand why because you're trying harder um easier said than done but uh we've all been there and you know i i feel like at some point he'll try it again but right now he's just not at that point but yeah i was definitely uh trying to be the coach in that situation and uh so a lot of things I've done wrong in my career happening there. <laughs> and, and that's, that's part of it.
2: Uh, okay. <laughs> sprint cars. Let's talk sprint cars because during all this time you are yeah driving that, that car with that little 305 in it yep. and you're whooping up. I mean, you were, you guys didn't run a lot, but you won a lot.
3: Yeah, and uh, hopefully this coming season we get to play with that thing some more. Uh, Brandon's working on getting a 360 motor put together so we can uh, broaden our horizons a little bit on that side of things. But uh, yeah, man, sprint cars were – that was kind of a welcome thing too because I was – again, I was you know really beating my head against the wall on the modified side of things. Um, and my buddy Brandon, who I went to college with, uh, had inherited his grandfather's sprint car. Uh, when he passed away and he wanted to keep the, the family legacy and the whole team going and stuff. So he wanted me to drive it and I had no idea what I was doing. Um, but boy, I kind of felt really at home in him. Um, people ask me all the time, like, what do you like racing or driving better sprint car or modified? And the biggest thing I tell them is driving a sprint car is unbelievable. The corner speed and, um, you don't like just they're ungodly fast. And it's like the formula one of dirt racing, but racing a modified is a little bit better. The wheel to wheel racing um, sprint cars can get strung out a lot. Um, but yeah, we, I felt really at home in that thing and it's got the biggest cheat sheet in the world stuck on top of it. So like, even if you miss the setup a little bit compared to a modified, I can just jam the wing front rack and it'll do the opposite. So, uh, and especially, I think it was a great learning, getting my feet wet in the sprint cars a little devil's bullet track. Cause there wasn't a lot of aerodynamics and stuff to it. So I got to learn a lot of the setup and feel of the sprint car without having the wing really mess with a lot of it and then running other tracks or transitioning to bigger devil's bowl. Um, started to teach me the the wing speed and, and all those kind of things as we went. But, uh, yeah, me and Brandon just being good friends too. We just worked really well together. We could, uh, he has a great mechanical side to him and aspect and he learns a ton. Like he didn't know a lot when we started that deal, but, uh, he absorbed a lot and he's great. He's really great to work with. And, uh, he had a lot of things in life that put racing uh, racing, slowed it down some, but yeah, we're starting to ramp back up and hopefully we get to continue on with that. Cause I've really enjoyed it and look to look to try to do even better.
1: Not to sidetrack us too much. Cause it popped in my head. So you transition, you do some asphalt stuff at Devil's Bowl. Does anyone ever try to tempt you, or did you ever get tempted to try something with fenders at some point?
3: Absolutely. So, like, right at at the end of the Devil's Bowl and Malta deal, I kind of was at the point where I was telling my guys, like, I either want to go race an ACT car or I want to go back to dirt. There's no in between like the, the asphalt modified deal was cool, but I wasn't in love with it. I was like, if I'm going to raise asphalt, I want to raise one of those or I just want to go back to dirt where I'm at home. Like not like I kind of just, that that's where I was with that whole deal. Um, and we talked about it, talked about it and just like, I either wanted to go race Thunder Road or just go back to Lebanon Valley or Malta. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, Malta wasn't there at the time, but yeah.
1: What did your dad and your guys say to that? Were they like, cool, Let's try something different? Or are they like, hey, our bread's usually kind of buttered over here?
3: Yeah. It was more like, we can think about that, but we have a lot of modified equipment right now. So let's just go back to dirt finish the year out. And we went back to dirt and won two races before the season was over. So it kind of just like sealed that right there. <laughs> so. and I yeah, I, I looked, would say so. But, but I do watch Thunder Road quite a bit on Flow Racing. I still someday would like to get up there i've never even been there but it looks awesome
2: well listen it i think behind the scenes we might have helped somebody get a ride for next year so we can awesome we can work on you too don't worry we'll we'll find yeah. something maybe we'll start you off at claremont
4: and work your way up to thunder road or something like that yep let's take a break from our podcast and tell you about the people that help us bring this show to you for free every single week Now the chances are pretty good that if you're listening to the show, you love to play outdoors. If you're gonna be on the trails, on the water, in the dirt or in the snow, the first place to go is La Power Sports in East Montpelier. LaCare's is the area's only authorized Polaris dealer and they have brand new industry leading Polaris ATVs, side-by-sides and snowmobiles in stock and ready for you. Plus a great selection of pre-owned equipment. If you're getting ready for winter, there's still a handful of 2023 Polaris sleds available, but don't wait because they'll go fast. Plus check out LaCare's full line of parts and accessories, riding gear like helmets, boots, gloves, jackets, and more, or make an appointment with the skilled professionals in their full service and repair department. And by the way, it's not too early to start thinking about next summer with a 2023 Pinecraft pontoon boat, a Mercury outboard motor, a Hewitt Dock, or a Polaris Razor sports side-by-side. How about a Polaris Ranger UTV or a Polaris Sportsman ATV? Now, you know all about the LaCare family's racing history, and you know they don't settle for anything less than perfection. The same is true about their other passion, LaCare's power sports. In fact, They've been at it for 61 years. Check out their virtual showroom, catalog, and services online at lacares.com. Find Lacares Power Sports on Facebook or give them a call 802-476-8199. Lacares Power Sports, Route 14 in East Montpelier, Vermont.
2: If you've got a home project going on, your first stop should be Barry Tile and Morrison Clark Incorporated from flooring to kitchens, from bathrooms to outdoor projects, from your home to your business. They are number one in central Vermont.
4: As you've heard on this show, Justin and I are officially middle-aged super dads now. And one of our favorite hobbies is looking at the Barry Tile Facebook page to see their latest projects. I love the carpeting and hardwood flooring, and he loves the kitchen countertops and shower installations. And it's true. Barry Tile has been family-owned for 50 years, and their
2: experience shows in every single job. It's high-quality work by highly qualified people who can design and install everything you need to upgrade your home or office. It's not a big chain store. It's local people with common sense and a ton of skill.
4: Be like us and check out the Barry Tile Facebook page to see some examples of their incredible work. Or you can give them a call at 802-476-0912. You can also stop into the showroom at 889 South Barry Road in Barry, Vermont, and tell them that the guys from Uncommon Deeds sent you.
2: It's almost here. Winter is coming, and at least one New England snowstorm is going to knock your power out. When that happens and you're in the dark, you'll be wishing that you had called Bushy's Generator Sales and Service. So don't wait. Bushies has been recognized as the number one dealer of Briggs & Stratton home standby generators in the state of Vermont, and they're also a leading dealer of Kohler generators. From sales and installation to service and maintenance on all makes and models of generators, from 10 kilowatts to 200, Bushies is the only call you need to make. And hey racers, you know how important it is to have small portable generators at the track, and Bushy's had you covered there too. After all, they're racers too, and they know what you're looking for. Check out their selection of Briggs & Stratton inverters and have the power where you need it when you need it. Wayne and Ben Bushy have more than a decade's experience in this business and Bushy's Generator Sales and Service covers all of Vermont and New Hampshire as well as Massachusetts, Connecticut, and New York. Give them a call at 802-591-1903 or visit their Facebook page or bushysgenerator.com. Bushy's Generator Sales and Service of Springfield and Brookfield, Vermont. We keep your power on. And now, back to our show. Aha. So... um. How, with the sprint car thing in the 305, because it was such a big deal, you know, when when you were racing a lot more with the Scone cars at, at Devil's Bowl, you know, they they were really, Scone was hitting on all cylinders. They were 20 cars a race, and you've got Danny Duville and Chris Donnelly. And they're just, you know, the elite drive, really the two elite drivers in New England for sprint cars. And you're out there beating them with a motor that's down 300 horsepower on the little track that's fine That's you know, understandable but then you're doing it on the big track i mean how how did they um accept that i mean were, were you welcomed by by those tours or 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 those drivers
3: i i feel like i was okay with them um i do <laughs> uh <laughs> dan never really said too much um will will used to bust my balls quite a bit if i got on the podium um that i would pass them and stuff but uh man i if anything the devil's bowl's big track was so slippery i think the 305 kind of helped us once we got going on the tiny track they had to let off so much with all the horsepower and i just kept it wound up so as as great of a story as it was being a tiny little motor i do think it was kind of an advantage at times um that i could just get some momentum wound up and not have to lift and these these guys had to lift or burn their brakes off and those kind of things but uh i never i never really felt any hatred or anything like that they're a great group of guys and they were good i just we had a really good car and brandon really hit on some setup stuff and uh i just really felt at home driving them things um and i was hungry i was really hungry at the time and i really wanted to get success in whatever i could to boost my own morale kind of too because i was pretty down in the dumps i was still struggling so bad on my modified side of things um
2: yeah. So. You mentioned Will Hall, and he's been on the show, and that's no disrespect to Will that I didn't mention him. But <laughs> at that time, he wasn't
3: winning like he is now. You I just. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So, well, he's going to hear this and he's going to be like, what the hell? So,
3: yep, Yeah. No uh, doubt. Yeah. <laughs> Don, I think Donnelly, I ran with him quite a bit, and then he had stopped for a little bit there. Now he's right back into it. But uh,
2: yeah, he won the title again this year. Yep.
3: Yep. So, hopefully, I get to race with him, guys, a little more coming up. So,
1: you mentioned the hunger. Where. Where is the hunger now? What is the hunger for right now?
3: Well, I've won modified races. Not as much as I want to, of course. But now, I've really, um, I've kind of dove all into the uh, American racer, short track super series, Brett Deo side of things. And I really feel at home in it. And that's for a few reasons. Um, his rule books are quite more wide open. But as a race car builder, I love that. I feel like I can experiment with a lot more things. I can kind of race the rule book some, um, and I enjoy that. And then I'm getting to some tracks that I really feel at home with. I went up to Utica this year because Utica Rome has always been notoriously super slippery. It's got guys like Shepard, Decker, Friesen, um, Willie Decker, guys that have been there forever. Like I grew up watching them race there and, I feel like if I can go up there and I can be successful, you can apply that to a lot of racetracks. Um, and I went up there and I got my butt kicked a lot of the season. Um, but right at the end of the year, I started running in the top five with them guys. Um, so my hunger is to take that next step there and take the next step kind of everywhere. I've, it's my second year being on a, a full tour. Um, I was racing the short track super series, North side of things and his elite deal and, Now that I've kind of gotten down the road two years in a row, I've learned quite a bit and what it takes to do that. And now I've actually got some notes going to a lot of these racetracks that I've never been to. Um, I've got my first podiums. I've gotten a second and a third on the tour. Um, And I just, I feel like if I could put a night together, I've got the right equipment under me. Finally, I've got the right notes and I feel like I have enough experience to where I can win one of these things. Um, So I want to be, My hunger right now is I want to be competitive on Friday nights at Utica Rome and competitive is a a tough word because it's, yeah, I want to be able to win a race if the scenario works out right. Um, but I just want to be week in and week out racing with them guys, not just out in the field. Um, and then Saturday nights I'm planning on racing Fonda with that same group, um, so, yeah, if I can be competitive on Fridays and Saturdays and just keep building my program up, and if I can put some nights together on the tour and be in contention to win a race, that's that's where my hunger is at.
2: You said it right there that success is a is a tough word or competition is a tough word or whatever it was that you said because you're racing against Matt Shepard. You're racing against Stuart Friesen and Mike Mahaney and Matt Williams. And the guy, I mean, the guys that are winning everything. Would Shepard win 42 races this year or whatever it was? So, you know, a top five is a win for a little team like yours, right?
3: Absolutely. I try to keep that.
2: Not, not that you're happy with a top
3: five. Exactly. That's like the perfect way to put it. Like it feels like a win at times, but it's not like you still want to win the race. You want to bring home trophy and the, then the track helps uh, especially when you're racing as much. But uh, I just try to keep it in perspective. Like the final two months here, I've gotten hooked up with Jason Barney. Um, and we've hit on some things at PMC. I haven't been out of a redraw. I haven't been out of the top 10 in two months. That has been a huge boost to our team. Um, and hopefully I can transition in the next year with that momentum I've, I've left with here. And uh, I feel like I'm closer and closer every week. And, uh, and that was my goal this year going into it. If Running those tracks was to hopefully get myself to this point so I can take the next step for next year to uh, try to break out really. Um, on this next level of racing it's been years to try to get to this point and uh hopefully hopefully next year could be our breakout year
1: tell us a little bit about your car owner
3: so i really don't have a car owner per se we we have a group of guys that just all have a lot invested um cars are owned by me and work and uh, Bob Godgar owns a lot of equipment I use on my cars and motors through killer crate. My grandfather owns a lot of parts. My dad owns a lot of stuff. We all kind of own the truck and trailer together. We've all pooled money together. So car owners are very broad word, but I've just got great people teamed up. We have a great team and uh, it's awesome that I've got these people behind me because racing at any level is crazy expensive. Um, But the race is the level we're trying to race at right now um, is really expensive. And so uh, it takes all of us. And if we lost any one of those people that makes this happen, it it couldn't happen right now. Um, So I'm just really thankful for my dad, Bob, my grandfather, um, and everybody I have supporting me is awesome. And, you know, on nights where we get on the podium right now, um, and where it almost feels like a win and seeing all those guys, uh, excited is what it's all about. And so hopefully, uh, we can, we can get some pictures and get a nice big fake check to put on the wall and win a race coming into next year.
1: Sounds like it would be a very sloppy divorce. So hopefully everyone stays happy. <laughs>
3: yeah, <laughs> we're not, we're not planning on any of that. Just keep everybody happy and, uh, we can win some races and that's what it's all about.
2: So who is bob godgart and how did this all happen I've, I've gotten to know bob pretty well but oh yeah um you know he is a very interesting guy with a lot of different interests oh yeah hell did he end up supporting you
3: so i've known bob a long time i grew up racing rc cars in the winter time and bob raced rc cars and i really didn't know him that well and then uh our local rc car track um was going under and he took it over and kept it going so i, I knew him a little bit more then because he took the place over and I met him more long story short I was at Fonda Speedway for their end of the year race and I was just a spectator in the grandstands um me my girlfriend and my one of my crew guys was there hanging out I went to the concession stand and Bob happened to be there and I got talking to him and I didn't even know he lived 10-15 minutes from me and he's like yeah hey I want to come over and help you work on your car go to the races with you stuff like that And it's like yeah, absolutely. We could always use a helping hand. Well, he got hooked after being with us for a few races up in Malta and helping work on the car. And then we got talking about um, Devil's Bowl and Which how I
2: raced. He raced at Devil's Bowl in the '80s, right?
3: Street stocks at Devil's Bowl, Malta, um, and Bethel uh, on the asphalt. And so he had really wanted to get back up to devil's bowl because he used to race there. And so he had bought me a crate motor to put in one of my spare cars. And that's how I got back to racing at devil's bowl full time. And then once we started having success and we won some races, he's been hooked ever since poor guy.
2: (laughs) And now tell us what is killer crate?
3: So killer crate. um, We were having a lot of success on the crate side of things. And we, I, I had had between my dad and my grandfather and myself, we have a lot of, tricks and things that we had uh, learned and bob's like man like if you really want to be successful modifieds, we should transition some of these tricks and things you do as a business to try to help pay for the race cars and then also build up the modified program and so that's how we got into dyno and motors and selling carb spacers and and valve springs and rockers and all those kind of things that we do now as a business and that business solely goes towards our race team and and paying for modified motors and those kind of things. So Bob, uh, he's a great entrepreneur. He's done lots of businesses in his life. And, uh, that was the side of things that he brought to our program that again has, has helped us and me build it up to a level that we never would have been at. So Bob's been a huge part of our racing program.
0: And
2: now there's another name that I've seen on your cars. I don't know a lot about them, but who are the sharps?
3: Um, they, we were partnered up with them to race at Lebanon Valley. Um, we actually don't race together anymore ever since I transitioned out of Lebanon Valley. Um, uh, but they were a guy and his wife that had owned a, a big block motor to race at Lebanon Valley and we put it in one of my cars and hey, we won a race and we were really competitive for the time we were together. Um, just, it didn't work out to keep going. And, uh, but I, I thank them a lot for everything they did for me for our two year stretch there and, and the races we won. So, um, yeah, and I wish them success with what they're doing going forward. And in racing, I've unfortunately, I've been around it long enough that, you know, things happen. People are here for a little while, and then they can't do it for various reasons, or they got to do other things. And, and that's part of it. Pieces to the puzzle. Yep, absolutely.
1: How tough is that grind, trying to get, like you said, to this next level, the business aspect of it, and the financial aspect that obviously goes with it?
3: It's really tough. I mean, you almost never, like, especially uh, traveling right now, um, you never don't think about the finances. You almost um, you look at races and uh, you almost got to worry about, like, what's it pay to start before what it pays to win so you can make sure you got enough fuel in the race car and the truck to get to and from to break even or close to even um, and, and those various things. And uh, so it's really tough. And then, like, especially this time of the year, um, like we just got done going to swap meets this weekend and, and trying to, you know, hustle, uh, used parts to get the bank account built up, um, to, you know, divvy out to rebuild my own equipment for next year. So it's, uh, there's almost never an off season now, especially when we race in February and stuff like that. Uh, it's a very short couple of months, but, um, yeah, you almost, the finances, you never, never stop thinking about it. Um but
2: can i I, can i can i ask you you know you don't maybe you don't have to give the the answer but what are you guys spending on motors in a big block or a 410 or whatever you're running
3: um it's it varies just like anything um we've we've got one new one that we paid for and that that's in the 30 range for a big small block um our big blocks but i really don't have any big blocks anymore because i've committed to the whole short track super series deal which is all small blocks but they they varied from thirty to fifty depending on what you're starting with for, for parts and such. And the small block side of things is a little more economic a little more economical um, because it's a lot more wide open. Like you can go down south and buy a super late mile motor and bring it up here and rebuild it and use it. Um, and you don't quite need, especially on like short track super series racing accord and five mile point, some in Woodhole on some of these smaller tracks, you don't need um, as crazy of horsepower. Um, I mean, uh, Accord this year, I finished third and I had a a 393, um, small block, um, that we had $8,000 in. So it's, uh, it's a little more economical, but racing's tough across the board, no matter what you do. Um, so yeah, in the 30 range, I would say right now (laughs) for, for what we're doing.
1: So you cross the finish line and you get one of those big fake checks you were talking about. How much of that have you already spent before you leave leave the racetrack?
3: Right. (laughs) If we're driving uh three hours to uh Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania, we're we're about six hundred dollars in fuel in the truck before (laughs) we're all said and done. So uh yeah, that's you're doing the math on the way home seeing seeing how far in the red or green you are each race. Um but, We're
1: eating at McDonald's, not winning. Yeah, we can't afford Is it McDonald's or Chili's tonight? <laughs>
3: yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but, you know, we don't. I don't do it for – people ask me how I make my living. Like, I, I make my living racing, but I don't do it driving race cars. You know, I do it uh, between working at PMC, between Killer Crate, a little bit of racing. It kind of just all blends together, and somehow I pay my bills, and uh, we keep, keep it all going.
2: Your taxes must be hell every year.
3: <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, it's uh, not an easy time of the year. <laughs> it's a lot of paperwork. So, where
2: where do we go from here? Um, you know what's what's your goal this year or this coming year rather, and five years from now, and twenty years from now?
3: I think about it a lot, uh, especially the longer office deal. But uh, this year, my goal is I want to be competitive. But, man, I, I feel like if I can put the pieces of the puzzle together, I don't see why I can't race for a championship on Friday might, at Utica might be a little tougher, but Saturday at Fonda or uh, vice versa. And then I've been uh, sixth and seventh in points on the tour the past two seasons, and I really want to break into that top five and win a tour race. Um, I feel like that would really uh, – I'm close enough. I feel like I can, if I can put a night together, I can win a tour race. And I feel like that gets me that next step closer to the Andy Biketti Mark, um, and the pouches and the shepherds and all those kind of guys. So, uh, yeah, I just want to keep building my notebook up, uh, win a tour race and be challenged for a championship at one of my home tracks. Um, those are my 2023 goals beyond that man i don't know i just want to uh keep making a living in racing i don't know how that looks i don't know if it's somehow i can make a living driving a race car um that would be awesome but uh whatever that looks like whether it's you know i continue on with killer crate or uh i don't know we can run pmc forever um and building race cars i don't know i don't know what that looks like but i just want to make a living in racing uh i can't see myself doing anything different and uh one way one way of that is is my goal to keep going down the road
2: i kind of like that answer um so i want to ask you something before we get into our quick hitters um you've raced for a lot of different promoters and a lot of different scenarios how does brett dayo stack up because he started his series as a big middle finger to dirt <laughs> right to world racing group and dirt car and all that and but it's he survived he's he's thrived and he's paying $50,000 to win and he's paying $40,000 for championships or whatever it is and you know this is a thing that you know on paper 10 12 years ago you think that's this is going to go away soon but it's only getting bigger and bigger
3: yeah absolutely like i a couple of years ago i had no thoughts of running the short track super series stuff um i i raced locally i raced dirt tracks and big blocks and i never even thought about it and then um you know, the more I looked into it, I just said, man, the guy's paying really good races. I don't quite have a motor package and stuff like that that makes sense to go run them races. Let me go get my feet wet, run a couple of them. I, I, I rented the first three, and he treated you so well. And the payout was – it made sense. Like, again, you go back to looking at your red and greens. And if I could make the show, I was closer to – <laughs> not being red than I ever had been racing cars, even if I wasn't winning. Um, and so that's what kept bringing me back. And then the more I went back, uh, man, I just, I feel like he's a promoter a lot. Like there's a lot of promoters out there, but this guy is finding ways to pay these purses and expand dirt modified racing. Like it used to be back in the heyday of dirt racing. Um, he's getting us out there on flow to audiences we've never been in front of. And that helps when you're trying to find sponsors or you're trying to get into different parts of the country, like Louisiana or down South. Um, I just feel like it's new. It's, it's a new um, blood to the sport that may have been getting a little stale in some aspects. And, and all other thing is too going back to like the race car builder side, I feel like these are modified again. Like we don't, we're not restricted to a, a crazy rule book. We can get a little, a little, a uh, little out there on things. And I feel like I can go home and build a different motor than somebody else has got. Cause I don't, the motor rules are half a page long instead of four or five pages long. Um, and, and same thing goes for the car. So uh, yeah, I, I feel like he's, he's pushing the limits on things. And I think he's making dirt up their game too, which is good for the racing industry. For sure.
1: Time for our Barry Tile quick hitters, and then we'll let you go. No Uh, problem. First up, what's something that you've learned from racing that helps you in your life outside of it? Hmm. (laughs) Doing your taxes, right?
3: (laughs) Yeah, that's for damn sure. Boy something i learned race all of it like you're gonna life uh and racing as a whole is ne- almost never gonna go the way you pictured it or you want it to um but at the same time if you work hard enough in life or at racing uh it might take years or weeks or hours but you'll you'll eventually get there and uh yeah, I feel like like a, a career in racing is a roller coaster. Like you better like thrill rides if you want that, and uh, that's how life can be in many aspects. So it, uh, I think they go hand in hand, and it's taught me a lot in life, and uh, grateful for that.
2: Uh, my question is always, what's the dumbest thing you've ever done in a race car?
3: Um, one night at Lebanon Valley, it was a heat race. Uh, I was in a transfer spot. And it was the last lap going into turns three and four and i drove in like 10 car lengths too deep and i banked off the side of peter Corlato, which is was one of our customers as well at PMC. um and knocked that guy out of the transfer spot for absolutely no reason and i pissed off my sponsors and a lot of crew members and everything at the time and I looked back and I was like, wow, like that really was probably the dumbest thing I've ever done. There was no reason to do that at all. And I wrecked the side of my car, wrecked the side of his car, I wrecked his night and I pissed off people that, uh, had a lot behind me. So, and I was young, I was, that was probably like my third year racing. Um, but yeah, that was the time where I was like, okay, got it. Like you do not need to do that. (laughs) So. Still look back at that and like makes you red in the face. Like that was dumb.
2: So he's got yeah. a pretty good reputation as a nice guy too, right?
3: Absolutely. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean,
1: like, Aaron, which like, makes it
3: worse. <laughs> <fits>. absolutely so. <laughs> <laughs> still feel bad about it.
1: <laughs> What's or who's the driver you've learned the most from by watching while you're racing through the windshield?
3: Probably especially lately it's been matt Shepard. As, as far as i can see him uh when i'm racing with him but uh the guy just i know he's got a great setup car and um you know all of the above great equipment behind him but man especially super slippery racetracks or some of these different racetracks we go to the guy just figures it out no matter what is put in front of him whether it's a rough track or Slippery, or trying to find bite or groove or traffic's in his way, he just makes it happen. and I've learned a lot racing around him, um, so that's been really cool, especially as of the past couple of years. you talk
0: to
2: him at all, or, not, or is it more like the go karts where you just kind of bring your friends and stick
3: close to the trailer? Not really. I uh, Pete, Pete uh, has talked to him on and off sometimes because he used to race one of his cars way back in the day with yeah. uh, Randy Ross and such, but uh, no, I personally never really talked to Matt, um see him a lot now, but, uh, no, I've never really had a conversation with him to be honest with you. Is
1: there anywhere people can kind of follow you to see what you're doing and keep up with you? Yeah.
3: We have uh, our social media page, like my own personal Facebook page. I try to put a lot on and then, uh, I've got Bobby Hackle racing on Facebook. Um, and then uh, we've got our Killer Crate page and then PMC Race Cars, all of that is on Facebook. I've had a website, but it's not been updated in a while, so I really got to get on that this winter. Um, so, yeah, those are our main pages to, to stick through to and, and kind of watch. And uh, you'll be able to see us at Fonda Speedway on Saturdays, Utica, and then the Short Track Super Series. And then I, I still venture out and try to get to a lot of specials at various racetracks as well. Um, somebody asked, Yeah, you, me,
2: just, you just won at Five Mile Point on their last weekend ever.
3: Yes, yep. Uh, we didn't win the big finale. We won the feature the night before, but that was still really cool. But, uh, yeah, people. Ha- somebody asked me today at the, the swap meet, how many races did I run this year? I really don't know. It's got to be 50 or 60 or something like that. But, uh, yeah, I've, I try to just get about anywhere that semi makes sense, and uh, I like going to different places. So, somewhere in the northeast, you can find me during the summer.
1: Coming to a milk bowl soon.
3: Yeah. I, let me kiss that cow. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That would fit right in with
2: dirt, right? Dirt people would love that.
3: (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Someday I'm going to get to Thunder Road. That place just looks awesome.
2: All right. We'll find a street stock for you then.
3: Sounds good. Yeah.
2: Okay, man. Good luck. And uh, thanks for doing the show with us. and, And we'll be watching in 23.
3: Absolutely, guys. Thanks for having me. All right.
1: Thanks again to Bobby for giving us so much of his time. And some some really good answers in there, Justin. And I pulled out a new quick hitter and I was a little worried after I answered it because there was some pausing and I'm like, Oh, I might've, I might've reached a little too far, but he came up with a good answer to the, what you have learned from racing that you apply to life.
2: At first I thought that he was deer in the headlights, but he was actually just thinking of, of great answer. Um, and I really appreciated that he came up with that on the fly. And I liked your question too. Um, it was a new one. And it made me think um, I did the. It's so funny that you played my first win in the open in the clips, the sound bites, because it's all kind of tied together. I did the Devil's Bowl banquet. I uh, was the MC last week. And Todd Stone in his championship speech. Said something about how racing is there's only 10% of racing that's enjoyable and good, and the other 90% absolutely sucks. But you race for that 10%, and just when you want to give up, when you've blown a motor or wrecked the car for the third week in a row or whatever, then you end up winning a race or finishing third or coming from 20th to fourth or something like that. And you have a good night and it rejuveni- rejuvenates you. And Bobby. Hackle in his answer to your question kind of alluded to that sort of theory. When I was 16 years old and I started racing, um, John Adams, the Birdman, was kind of my mentor and really still is. And he told me that same thing. And I I know that he and Todd Stone have never met. They've never discussed this, and I've never heard it from anybody other than John until Todd said it in his speech. And he said to me, racing is 90% suck and 10% great. And he said, when you're when you're all done racing, go back and do the math and you'll figure it out. So in 2004, I mean, listen, you guys all know I sucked. I trashed the shit out of my race cars. I destroyed stuff. But we'd get a couple of trophies a year. In 2004, when I got done, after a wreck, I went back and I did all my stats. I ran 110 races and I got 11 trophies, which is exactly 10%. And I was like, hot damn, that is cool. And it really, when Bobby was giving his answer to your question, I I went back to that moment. I was like, oh,
1: that's great. Someone from the outside would look and say, oh, 10%. That's horrendous. You think of any other sport (laughs) analogy, if you're using 10%, chances are. It's really, really bad. Yeah, but now you're, jeez, coming up on like twenty years removed from racing, mm. and probably what eighty to ninety percent of your memories are that ten percent.
2: Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I do remember the good nights, but we had a lot of bad nights. <laughs> the you know loading the car after a wreck is the fun part, you know, and, and thrashing on, on the thing during the week in the shop is, is the fun part. <laughs> the on track stuff, not a lot of great. <laughs> what
1: was it I was watching, I think it was that race that your first win and some, I believe it was in the street stocks, put it up on their door on the front straightaway wall. And, Dave said he's all fine. He's out. And 20 years from now, he's going to tell his kids he went end over end at Talladega.
2: Yeah. That was Ryan Nolan's cousin. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Kyle. Yep. <laughs> and that was great. That whole, that was, we're getting off track here, but it's, that was a great thing that went all night long. Kyle wrecked in every corner. He spun in turn one. He spun in turn three. He spun in turn two. And then he hung it all the wall, off front stretch. But Moody was talking about how he's getting his education all night long. He was saying, Oh, he's studying over in turn two now.
1: We called him his new and, favorite driver.
2: Yep. And then when he wrecked on his door, when he's coming out of the car, Moody says, He's studied all that long and now he's got his master's degree. And, you know, Kyle does the Rocky salute, two hands in the air at the perfect time. It was, it was a, that was, I remember those
1: things more
2: than I remember my own
1: races. Funny how that works. Yeah. Like looking back at even like high school basketball, like most of your, my memories are from practice or long bus rides with my friends. I remember very little of specific games. Yep. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. It probably helped that I rode the pine the pony. <laughs>
2: Listen, you get into the baseball Hall of Fame if you swing 300, right? I mean, yeah. you're really good if you hit 3 out of 10 balls. So the the numbers make sense. Okay. And it doesn't. It doesn't make sense, but it you're going to lose a lot more than you're going to win.
1: True that? Make sure you're following us on all the socials, Uncommon Deeds, on Twitter and Facebook, Uncommon Deeds Podcast, on the Instagram. I have nothing special planned to say the Instagram this week. Sorry. If you want to be part of the Uncommon Media family with this show, the new sports order, some of the new projects we have coming up in the next few weeks, you can email us, UncommonMediaVT at gmail.com. Mm. Mm-hmm.
2: All, All right. kinds of sweet plans. And like we said, stay tuned to the merch stuff. That is coming very soon. We have proofs on a couple of designs. You're gonna to want to get your mitts on this stuff because it's gonna be limited edition. Not that we're world changing, you know, motorsports mecha. Maybe what New I was England say, changing. But, you know, we're yeah, that's there you go.
1: Really but there's not going to be a lot
2: of these shirts made. So so get them while they're hot. They look awesome. Uh, Yeah.
1: But if it's overwhelming success and everyone wants more, we'll make some more. <laughs> yeah. Like
2: when Disney would re-release Snow White from the vault on VHS. Right.
1: Like, does anyone actually believe that this is the final ever run yeah. for the McRib? No. No. It's coming back at some point.
0: Yeah.
1: We've, we've gone off again. Let's we us pull have. it back in. Uh, Wrap us up, Tom. <laughs> you've been listening to the
3: Uncommon Deeds Podcast, a production of Uncommon Media.